God's super and transcendent authority. His mercies are new every single morning. They never end. Jesus is still ascended into heavens and remains the king and kings, the Lord of lords, and yes, even the president of presidents. And yet more than 145 million people, most with passions almost immeasurable, passions I would say that range the scale of say nine through 10 and a scale of one through 10, wouldn't you say? Lots of opinions, lots and lots of hopes and dream. Lots and lots of fear and sadness, all bottled up into a single day this past Tuesday. And like all days after a contended contest, you know, I do it, of course, after the Georgia lost yesterday. I had to get that in. And we sat around as a family and we thought about it and meditated upon it and opined about it. We all do that in a contest, whether it's a vocational event that you there, the next day you step back and you think about what just happened there? What's going on? What can we learn perhaps by it, et cetera, et cetera. That is to say that in this time of, in this moment of reflection, maybe you're reflecting a little bit. What just happened? You know what I mean, right? I mean, what really just happened this past Tuesday here in the context of the temple presence of God? We mean that quite literally. In the context of the church of God, with direct access to the mind of God in Christ Jesus is codified in the Holy Scriptures written of God, we of all people, we of all people, are privileged with perspective that can see things as from the elevated perspective of heaven, you would think. At least those who would dare to, just would dare to, to be just a little bit contrarian to the mass mob that's doing it as well on this earth. It's those who would dare to believe the words of God in Galatians, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And from this lofty perspective of God via the Holy Scriptures, well, at least two immediate reflections come to mind. First, such as to bring us to the God's providential selection of a sermon text today, we have basically just completed an election. Now, we're thinking about this. Well, roughly 50% of Americans, 70-plus million people, voted for one candidate. And then again, of course, roughly 50% of Americans, 70-plus millions of people, voted for yet another candidate. Overwhelmingly, they all voted with the same thing in mind, albeit with two very different visions. Now get this, from the perspective of heaven, not from their human identity per se, the two perspectives or visions is related to their own personal histories or the histories of their people. 
in the stories. Two histories, two stories, but according to the word of God, not two humanities. We all voted for or against. We voted for, but never against, I should say, all of us, all 100% personal and family health and healing. We all voted for, not against, personal and family economic prosperity to take care and to feed our families, jobs that would give us dignity. We all voted, every one of us voted from, for the protection from evil, from, for personal dignity and respect, justice and mercy together. You see, as seen from the perspective of heaven, we all voted for the same thing. The same thing, because we are all fundamentally the same. We are all humans, all wanting to be cared for and, and to be empowered to care for those we love. We are all made, according to the Bible, all of us, no distinction in the image of God. Romans says it beautifully in their contentious day, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Now, you need to understand, honestly, I'm not lying. The contentions between the Jew and the Greeks and the politicalization of those two demographics was easily as contentious, if not well more, than the ones we see today. You could just as well say that Paul would have written, if written today, there is no distinction between Democrat or Republican. For the same Lord is Lord over all. That's from the divine perspective, you see bestowing his riches on all who would call upon him. Paul's point then and now, it is foolish. No, even more than that. It's sinful to despise another human being. It's as if we despise ourselves. However much we disagreed is from the perspective, again, of our own personal, family, ethnic, gender identities, and there are stories, and there are histories, passed down from generation to generation, many of which we don't know, but we know the values that came from them that were passed down. But we are all still wanting the same thing. And we all, with a passion, voted for the same thing. Especially Christians, I think, can resonate with all of this with the call from our presumptive new president to relational healing after this election, I think everyone could hear that and say, yeah, we want that. Well, this brings me to my second observation that leads then directly to our text. While we were 50-50 then in our political opinion this election, I suspect, and I know this congregation pretty well, we're probably pretty close to that right here in this room. I glory in that, by the way. Anything that would just give an image, just a glimpse to the world that Jesus Christ is bigger. Oh, I love it. Bring it on, Lord. Let us be a, a Petri dish of complexity, <laughs> to say the least, that the world might see that our oneness is not a temporal-based oneness. And so, again, 
in our political opinion this last year, albeit all one fundamental human aspiration, therefore we all likewise united in our passion to have a president. Now that's what I want you to stop and think about. Every single one of us, we voted yes, I want a president. And you're going, well, duh. Yeah, well, usually profound things sound like that at first. But we should think about this for a moment. With minds set on things below, living on earth, we either voted Republican or Democrat. But no, from the perspective of things above in heaven, we all voted to have a president. Now, what does that mean? While we in a post-enlightenment inspired America with all our individualistic minded passions for self-autonomy and self-sufficiency, with all our talk of hating kings, we want and we canvassed for a king. Now I can hear somebody getting detailed on me here. You see, really, when you stop to think about it, we've really only reinstituted a monarchy in the form of a presidency. What amounts to a different form of the same thing in the form of a president, but with one difference. We want the privilege of choosing the president in our own image. Eh, maybe it's better to say it this way. Everyone, and you can see it in many of the polls, but also when you talk to the people, and why did they vote for this one or that one? It's someone that they most felt sees them. Sees them. And often they're making some very awkward choices to get there. Let's just be honest. But it's someone who somehow made a connection with them. That somehow spoke into their hopes or anger. Someone who spoke into their aspirations in all the ways that just described. You see, there's something about us, humanity, that at our core always did and always will want a king. We actually love kings. However we might describe and institute them, there is a vacuum deep inside our soul that wants a king. Even if the word king is but a metaphor, a metaphor for something that is hard to put your words into. You could use the word savior. You could use the word emperor. You could use the word ruler or lord. You could use the word custodian. You could use the word legal executive. You could use all sorts of words. Historically, what we want has been described in many ways, all the way back to Adam. But one of the most common metaphors used in Scripture about what it is we are looking for in a king is the metaphor of a shepherd wherein kings are often judged in relationship 
to how, they're, how it's idealized in the perfect or good shepherd. You heard it in Ezekiel. A rich tradition. It goes all the way back. I could read it over, really, over and over and over and over again, where the king is likened unto a shepherd. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. That was the greatest hope of humanity in pre-Christian era. Which then brings us again to our passage, and especially Matthew's presentation throughout the Gospels about who Christ is. Matthew emphasizes in his genealogy of the kings in chapter 1 that he is telling the story of the ultimate and true savior-like king who is going to come in the kind of spirit, if you will, of David. But he also stresses throughout his gospel these stories, a story like ours today, which culminates with, and Christ had compassion for them because they were as a people without a shepherd. This passage speaks right into wherever you are right now. And I pray God will lift it into your hearts. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would come now, fill our hearts and minds. Transform us by it, Lord. Let this not be a boring nominal exercise of flitting about the scriptures. Lord, speak deeply into our soul. Move us to repent. Move us to faith. Amen. Well, now you get to go to some scripture, and it's kind of fun to see it. We're going to do it pretty quickly here, but notice what happens here. The passage we read, of course, comes out of this amazing context where there was a discrepancy about fasting, and if you were here two sermons ago, you heard, or last sermon it was, uh, you heard about that and how it really wasn't about fasting at all. It's have we moved into a new era, a new time, a new place, a place that would be described as a place of rejoicing and not mourning in the coming of Jesus Christ. And we heard that we have. And now you're asking from that context, well, what exactly is Christ? What is it about Christ that makes us rejoice? And the answer is given, again, in a narrative form, in a story. In verses 18 through 34, we hear of some specific miraculous events. Verse 18 through 22, the healing of a woman with a hemorrhages. In 23, verse 26, the raising of an official's daughter from the dead. In 27 through 30, healing of two blind men. In all these stories, there was an incredible and populous movement of fame that went about the land as the stories were told and retold. Now get your head around some of this for a moment. I mean, really, raising something from the dead. In each case, the individuals are in very dire conditions beyond the assistance of ordinary human means. It was in need, the story wants you to know, of a super and divine intervention. And secondly, each case, Jesus' activity instantly produced an entire 
total cure. Such that his reputation again spread broadly. A king with power to really be a king. To be a life-on-life game changer, this king. is clearly the message of Matthew. That is to say that Jesus has power to do what no one else can do. Jesus' miracles are designed to produce a faith in him, though, not in ourselves or in any other. What we find in the passage is the similarities as to the condition of those who received it. So as to intentionally direct you away from finding some kind of united truth in what was happening in these people's lives. It directs you very intentionally away from that. So you won't start, well, what were they doing right? So I can go practice their little, you know, best practices list. What were they eating? What were they drinking? What was their lifestyles? Did they get exercise? What was their piety? Did they pray every day? Did they fast? What were they doing? Nothing. Nothing. Has nothing to do with this passage. It's all about the one who did. So what are we to conclude by all of this, you're asking? The so what? This is the point of 35 through 36 in our passage. You see, what happens right after this is, it says Jesus was going about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, and curing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness you could put on there in the way that the emphasis in the Greek is that you can possibly imagine. These were just a few snippets that he'd given you some specifics of. He was going about, it says. The tense there in the Greek suggests a continuous activity. This was just what he was doing. This is what he was about. The ministry of Jesus Christ. Every kind, not necessarily every case of sickness is here being exemplified. You think holistic here, don't you? I mean, there's just nothing that Jesus couldn't do. And there's no one beyond the pale of who he would do it for. Someone who really could resolve, you see, our worst fears and fulfill our highest hopes in life. Someone who could answer our passion for a true president. Who could provide for us all that we want. Jesus is the true person that we need to vote for, to put it in a cheesy way, (laughs) is somewhat of what Matthew is trying to say. He deserves to hold the highest office, not just of our land, but of our heart. He deserves to have your heart and, yes, your passion, a passion that would exceed and redefine and, yes, even subvert some of our other passions when they exceed the passion we ought to have for Christ. And so we see now Matthew's interpretation of all this activity in verse 36. This is where it comes right down to the the point, as we call it. For it says, quote, And when he saw the crowds, he was moved 
with compassion for them that they were sorely harassed and helpless like sheep having no shepherd. There is a moment, just maybe a moment, when from the mind of heaven you gaze upon our city and our land, even the world. But particularly the day after this election, what would you see? If you could just for a moment get out of the mundane temporal and see our world from heaven. Well, according to this passage, it would break your heart. It would break your heart. I feel Jesus' presence right now saying it. Do you? It'd break your heart. They are so wanting a true shepherd king. We would not see people any longer as enemies. We wouldn't see people as, you know, you fill it in. Words of hate and vitriol, personal words of attack, never here. These are the same people. They're going to crucify Christ, mind you. And then it goes on. It says, he was moved with compassion for them that they are harassed and helpless. And there it is. What was the problem? What was the problem? The problem was they were like sheep having no shepherd. That's the problem. That is the single most greatest problem in the world post the fall of Adam and Eve. That's the issue and the only issue. Do you believe that, Christian? I mean, it's almost impossible to say no if you even read a page of your Bible. That Jesus is the only singular answer there is in the world that's going to truly and fully and totally meet the greatest and deepest hopes of your heart and assuage the deepest and fullest fears of your life. Christ was deeply moved by a condition of people, pity with deep sympathy, Whereas he could have been judgmental. He could have reminded them of all the things they've said about him in the past as we've read. He could have gotten revenge. And their condition was one of being harassed or troubled and helpless. Because they didn't have a shepherd. The ultimate diagnosis if you're looking for one, as to what's wrong with the world, you got it. Right here. Clear and simple. Ezekiel, we heard the passage, lamented the same thing. In fact, the Old Testament is just filled, filled with that diagnostic. 
I mean, it begins the Old Testament in Genesis 48 where, where God is shown to be the true and only shepherd, king. He blessed Joseph and said, the God before him, whom my ancestors Abraham and Isaac walked, the same God, you see, who'd been worshipped and who had been looked after and sought after by all those behind him. That was a code by Abraham and Isaac. That is the whole patriarchal era. That they were looking for what, it says. He goes on. They were looking for God who has been their shepherd all of their life in their day. That's who they were looking for. All that nomadic work, all that praying, all that work and building arcs, that's what they were doing. They were looking for God, a divine, not human, shepherd king. The Lord is my shepherd, says the psalmist. And then those words that we've all heard probably, even if we hadn't been around the church, The Lord is my shepherd. And what? I will not have a want. It answers everything. We know that God made sure that even in the absence of his physicality, that he appointed those who would be under shepherds. Vis-a-vis the temple where that presence of the Shekinah glory spirit of God would descend and, and... God in his grace would condescend to work through mere mortals to bring it to them in flesh-on-flesh ways. And then he would warn them, like as in Numbers, that they may not be like sheep without a shepherd. And they warned the the civil kings like David and, and the spiritual rulers or kings like the priest of the temple, don't be like those shepherds out there. And that's the point, you see. Don't let these people be without a shepherd. It's amazing how many times this warning is described like sheep. That phrase you saw, like sheep without a shepherd, it's, it's stated in Numbers, all the way back in Numbers in 27. Who shall lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord may not be like, quote, sheep without a shepherd? Second Chronicles And then Micaiah and I saw all Israel scattered about on the mountains like sheep without a shepherd. I could read many more. This has been a whole history, really. The Bible has been a whole history of thousands and thousands of years chronicling people in search for a shepherd. It's part of who we are. Ezekiel, of course, 34, the condemnation. So they were scattered. Why? Because there was no shepherd. And scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. You know, boy, does that speak prophetically. When you're without a shepherd, you become food. Food for the evil wolves that lurk. Whether they lurk on a media station, whether they lurk in the social media, whether they lurk in your office, even sadly, even in your church sometimes, we become food. Because we have no shepherd. He condemns them. 
So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and scattered they became, food for all the wild animals. As I live, says the Lord God, because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild animals, since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. All of this, because, 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 we heard a bit read, I won't repeat it again, how God will eventually condemn the spirit of the false shepherds when he condemns all idolatry, because that's really the heart of idolatry, is making something a shepherd other than God. He calls it nonsense in Zechariah. Literally, God says, this is nonsense, that I might have that eye from heaven, and you too. When we see people in their rage, and when they spew out these things, even things that hurt you, in me, to see them and say, God, they're, they're being eaten alive. And they're just eating me. And, you know, I do the same thing, if not verbally, in my heart. Let's just be honest. The thoughts that I suspect has come through your mind this week about certain personalities, feeding on them viciously, Just be honest. It's all there. And so Jesus, God says to Ezekiel, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will make them lie down, says the Lord God, in peace. 34:15. He picks it up again in verse 23. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And this servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have all one shepherd. And then, of course, we, we're learning later that this David that he's talking about, well, he will go to his grave. And the promise is there will be one likened unto David who will never see the grave. That's what our passage is trying to say to you today. That he came. Prophecy was fulfilled. The shepherd, quote, tradition comes full course in Matthew's gospel. In chapter 2, verse 6 of Matthew, O you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. This very insignificant place, if you understand what's being said. You're in the place of the detestables or the vile or the whatever words we like to use about the other people. And it says that this Jesus came to Bethlehem, for from you shall become, come a ruler who will shepherd my people. That's how Matthew wants to tell you about Jesus. Guys, I didn't choose this passage. This has been an amazing series in Matthew, hasn't it? You guys have been giving me a lot of feedback, and I appreciate it. And it just seems like week after week, the Lord has got his eye on his people. And just mindlessly, I choose the next text in Matthew, and here we are. The week after the election... Please listen, all of us. Christ's ministry of teaching and healing was such that it proved, according to Matthew, that God is the ultimate shepherd, that we are all wanting 
even as to define what we seek in our president. Yeah. Matthew's conclusion, what you are looking for in the search of a king, president, is messianic. It is. That's explaining all the passion. It's messianic. The Messiah, the Savior King is the word Messiah. In its very nature, someone who sees you, someone who sees you, that's why you should vote for him, because he sees you. Whoever you are, he sees you, and he becomes like you. And so the application is quite simple. For those whose minds are set on things from the perspective of heaven, upon reflection this week, we need to have a reset. Christians, lovingly, sweetly, I say, we ought to be ashamed insofar as we participated in the passion that accompanies giving our heart to false presidents. More than that, we should repent. We should turn away. Repent is a big word we hear a lot in the church, but it just simply means to give your heart to someone else. Give your hope to someone else. Give your passion to someone else. Think about the things you think about the most. The things you post about the most. The things that are on your mind as you're talking to people the most and what you're hoping you can get out. Well, you know what? You'll know your president by what fills that sentence. You'll know. It can be a person. It can be an institution. It can be a job. It can be all sorts of things. Christ alone is what you're looking for. And the good news is while we confess that, while we need to think deeply about repenting that, when Jesus sees you, the same Jesus that says something like, you ought to be ashamed, you ought to be concerned for your soul, it's the same one that looks at you and says, but oh, I see someone's being ravaged. I see someone's being eaten by false shepherds who promise you the world but eat you alive in their consumption. And by the way, I'm not speaking about any person here. I'm speaking about the presidency and what we put into it. It's not the person's fault that you put all that into it. They may play into it, and that's their problem with God, okay? They may play into it, but that's not what I'm talking about here. This isn't about Biden or Trump. God forbid. This is about thinking from the specter of heaven, what is the presidency about in my heart and in our land? We ought to delight rather than to resist Christ's role. So many think that, it's just so funny because we live in a world, really, that just hates authority, hates ruler, hates king, hates 
We want all this, but yet we live our whole life trying to coronate something king of our hearts and doing it very well. You know, it's interesting just to kind of get you to think a little bit more. Some historians have uh, looked to try to discover, well, you know, is this such a new, I hear people, never before has X party treated this president so bad and it goes both ways. In my own lifetime, I mean, after the election, there's always a reaction of hate. People were calling him the Antichrist, murder. I mean, every despicable word I can think of was just barraging our culture. Do you remember that, some of you, when Obama was elected? I expect the same this election, don't you? It's always been that way. And you say, really, Pastor, has it really always been that way? Well, you just go do some fun homework today. I did a little bit. You know, just, what, what, were the, what, what are historians, people who step back and look at history from the historical vantage point, what, what do historians say were the most contentious of all elections? Many will go back to the election of 1800 and Jefferson versus Burr. I mean, for the first of only two times in history, the election went to the House of Representatives where Alexander Hamilton, the nation's first secretary, secretary, after a tied election, turned the tide by lobbying his fellow Federalists to throw their support to Jefferson. Though Hamilton and Jefferson despised each other. Made it very clear, mind you. Hamilton considered him a safer choice than Burr, whom he claimed, quote, loves nothing but himself and thinks of nothing but his own aggrandizement. Sound familiar? Others might look to 1824 and John Quincy Adams versus Andrew Jackson. By the time the Federalist Party had dissolved and all four candidates for president were Democratic or Republicans, Andrew Jackson, hero of the War of 1812, won the popular vote by fewer than 39,000 ballots, sound familiar, and captured 99 electoral votes, whereas Adams took 84 electoral votes. Uh, 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 84 electoral votes, 41 going to the Treasury Secretary Crawford, 37 went to the Speaker Henry Clay. They're all divided out there so that no one had a majority. And the election again went to the House of Representatives. And after a month of backroom negotiations, can you imagine those, by the way? <laughs> can you imagine if you'd had the news that was going on there on steroids, we call the social media? And therefore, he eventually clay supporters largely through their weight behind Adams, enabling him to win the House vote as states that had cast most of their electoral votes for Jackson. Some looked to 1860 and Abraham Lincoln. Do you remember that in the stories where he only won 40% of the popular vote? But he took most of the electoral votes from the North. Oh, I know, we, we have a thing. Some people don't like California very much. Some people don't like New York and all those you know, corridors of west and east. And, but think about of a nation now who's, you know, divided in a pre-Civil War fervor. 40% of the popular vote, but all those electoral votes that were up there in the east, they came, they came down on the guy that got 40% of the vote. What do you think is going to happen after that one? Well, of course, we so link his victory. And not many days later, South Carolina voted to secede. 
It resulted in the most carnage that has ever seen America in all of its history. 1876, Tilden and Rutherford Hayes. I'll let this be the last one. This was a doozy. Democratic Governor Samuel Tilden of New York won 250,000 more ballots in the popular vote than his Republican opponent, Senator Sam, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes. And he snagged 19 more electoral votes, though. There you go again, popular versus electoral. But Tilden was still one electoral vote short of the required majority of 185, and 20 votes remained uncounted, they said. All about fraud. 20 electoral votes were contested as if uncounted. Florida, Louisiana, South Carolina remained too close to call as each party accused the other of fraud while in Oregon an elector was declared illegal and replaced with controversial results as the crisis mounted threats of another civil war. How they settled it was unprecedented. The Congress established a special commission to choose where the contended two electoral votes would be applied, resulting in the Hayes election. I bet that went down well with all sorts of post-election vitriol, as you can imagine. Theodore Roosevelt, William Taft, Harry Truman, FDR, yeah, Gore, Bush, Trump, Hillary. What's my point? Are you yawning yet, people? Blah, blah, blah. That's what this passion does. And so... I'll leave you with one application. Repent. Put your faith in Jesus. Really review your social posts for the last year. Why don't you go back and look at it after the sermon? Review the conversations you've had and the things you've said. Be honest. Things you've thought. Evil thoughts. People just like you who voted for exactly what you were voting for just had a different history. That's all. Amen.